Hello and welcome and happy Monday. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, with David Cooper, and I'm your host, David Cooper. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, the show where no one's listening and no one cares. The show where every episode's the last episode. This week, we're going to get a little bit philosophical. We're going to talk about doing work, art making, versus receiving recognition for that work. We're going to share one of my favorite quotes. We're really going to get to know Dan and get to hear how much of an idiot I am. Then we'll talk about some science things. So let's jump right into it. Oh, and by the way, it's July 4th. I live in the U.S., so like any good Canadian, no show tomorrow. We'll catch you on the 5th. Let's start. Can I say let's fucking start? Or is the profanity, is that a bad look for you? Sure. Well, you know what? Have you adjusted to the ability to be profane on your podcast radio show that isn't a show that isn't a podcast? I have, but I haven't lost the acute awareness of when I'm turning it on and off, which sucks. Mm, it'll it'll come. Just Just let it go. Just relax. Relax. Spent a couple years just having this check, right? Like every yep. time I'm about to say something that crosses the line, I have that little light that goes off. Should I do this? And that light still goes off. I do it now, but it takes me out of the moment. So swearing has lost its fun, Dan. Well, I, having kids does that too. Because you, when you have kids, when they're really young, you can swear all you want. But then as they start to come online, as they start to like even listen to words, you know that they're not going to speak yet, but they can understand them. You start to tone down the swearing. And then eventually you just have these two modes where as soon as the door closes and you're having a private conversation, you talk like a trucker and then the door opens a little crack and the kids can hear you. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, fruit salad, fruit salad, yummy, yummy. <laughs> Are you and your wife behind closed doors? Do you color things with profanity or you keep it kind of clean? You're, you're more like with oh, no, your we buddy. Swear. You swear. We swear when we talk, for sure, yeah. when the kids aren't around. And when the kids are around, we don't swear. It's, it's like it, night it, and day. It's strange how profanity has become so normalized. Like 60 years ago to say yeah. the F word was like, oh my goodness. You'd be found out as a profane person. Now it's just so normal. But yet in broadcasting, you've got these archaic standards where you yeah. can't see. You, you know, you're not. People get away with it because rarely they're complaints. But technically, right. piss is too scatological, at least for the uh, FCC in the United States. I don't know about the CRTC in Canada or the Canadian standards, regu radio, regulate, whatever, CSRB. CRTC. So here's my thing. When, when it comes to swearing and kids... I have no problem with my kids learning how to swear. In fact, I hope that as adults, they know how to swear very well. Um, and I don't even mind them as teenagers swearing, but I just need them to know when it's appropriate to say those swear words and when it's not. And when they're very young, they just have like the way they talk and it's not, there's no filter on them. But as they're getting older and they're starting to learn, like there's a certain way to talk in front of your grandparents. And then there's a certain way to talk in front of your friends. And if you want to swear when you're with your friends, that's fine. But, you know, try not to teach them new swear words. Don't be the swearing kid. But just know that if you're swearing in front of an adult, you're communicating something to them about your strength of character. And that is probably not what you're trying to communicate. And it's exactly like you said, your kids learn how to swear. How is the key word there? How means like, when do you do it? In what context right. is it appropriate? And yeah. a really young kid can't learn how to swear because they lack the ability to kind of reason about who they're, who they're around and how it'll be perceived. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
Wow, we're really doing a lot of science here. Dan, you're a man of science. Let me ask you something. Why do meteors always land in craters? Ah, this sounds like it's got a good punchline. It doesn't. Uh, that's a that, it's a good question. I guess it could, could because uh, Stanley Kubrick thought it'd be easier to set up the cameras that way was the answer, right? What, what about, uh, you know, Mercury Mercury's a liquid at room temperature, right? Yeah. So if I construct a large enough room, a gigantic room around the planet Mercury, would it just melt away? <laughs> you, <laughs> I've never thought about that. I think it would because the sun is very hot when you get that close. So it might melt the room that way. And then I guess Mercury itself doesn't melt, but nonetheless. Got it. I like your questions. I like the way you think. Okay. I take a blood test. I find out I'm B plus. Uh, if I study really hard, can I get an A plus on the test? Mm, yes. Yes, you can. Yeah, you just got to work. You just got to work harder. I feel like last week when I said what happens to baby poop in the, in the mother's womb uh, was yeah. a better question than these ones. No, no. I think you're, I think the creator one was funny. I've never heard that. Did you make that up? Because it's good. That's a good joke. I'd like to say I did, but did I Google stupid questions to ask scientists before <laughs> I got on the interview here? Uh, I might have. Who knows? Well, who knows? Who, who could tell? I mean, that's really just an untested hypothesis at this point. By the way, just for the record, uh, I was doing a couple of drives and I decided to put on the old David Cooper podcast while I was driving. <sighs> Stop it. And it was fun. You put on a good little show. Like, it's, I'm excited to be part of this. And I didn't just listen to my episode, which is what <laughs> I I've obviously listened to my episode first. But then I listened to the Chris Hadfield one. And let me tell you, first of all, I loved when he trash talked me slightly. When uh, you you quoted me as saying that the International Space Station stinks really badly, like an outhouse. And, and he said, I like Dan, but he's never been on the ISS. <laughs> I love that. I just, to hear Chris Hadfield say something about me that was nice at the beginning and then kind of a diss, I really enjoyed that. I, I It was like a real highlight for me in my career. So I just want to thank you for making that happen. I want to say something and I want to be careful because our producer, Danny, who you might know better as a different name, uh, she wants to go by Danny now, was help me get the Chris Hadfield. It's Lydia. Help me get the Chris Hadfield. <laughs> <laughs> I won't do that. You Danny. Uh, uh, it's Danny from now on. I, yeah, prom Danny. I promise, yeah. Danny. Yeah. Uh, she helped me get the interview. So I got to be careful about what I say. But I'll say this. I asked Chris Hadfield a question that got me in a lot of trouble, that like got escalated, that risked the future of Chris interviewing with that network. Like it was a forbidden really? question um, and I could never air it. And, and out of respect to Danny, I can't say it, but okay, don't. It, yeah, it was along the lines yeah. of pooping in space, but I just took it one step too far. Uh, and, and that's all I can tell you about that interview. The, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, that's uh, that's funny. That's funny. It's funny. You listened to the podcast and you heard me talk about you. How did you feel when you're like, oh, this is Chris Hadfield talking about me right now? Yeah. Oh, that was, that, I mean, it's a big thing. Like Chris Hadfield is a, one of my heroes. Like he's amazing. He's amazing. Just the other day he was talking to King Charles. Now, frankly, King Charles ranks well below Chris Hadfield in terms of the people that I respect most in the world because Chris Hadfield's done some stuff that I respect him for. It's not just that he's, he's uh, amazing, but he's like, he's done some things that are on the like impressive and you got into a bunch of them on the podcast listener if you haven't listened you should definitely listen to that episode because it's really good because you asked him some great questions about like why are you good at everything and then he tried to like play that well i'm not good at everything and then he tried to list things he was bad at and he couldn't come up with any <laughs> yeah they were like stupid stuff like hey, you yeah. know i'm bad at, at knitting you know he couldn't come up yeah. with any he's yeah. good at everything that's he's his... good at everything if he if he wanted to knit he would knit better than anybody in the whole world he's like canada's sweetheart he's beloved he's good at everything 
everything. He's been yeah. to space. He played good. He played what of that David Bowie song in space? Yes, and- space oddity. You got it wrong when you were talking to him. You called it Odyssey, and he corrected you and called it Oddity. That was another one of my favorite parts when he corrected you. I got dissed by Chris Hadfield. You got dissed by Chris Hadfield. But the reason he's beloved across Canada is because nobody has ever aired him answering a just a, a dirty question. <laughs> Because if you, you had the potential to take him down a notch and make him less beloved in Canada, and you, thank God, didn't air that part of the interview that you got in so much trouble for. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. But, you know, it for, it's for all those reasons that he's beloved that I can't stand the guy. I, he's too perfect. <laughs> ah, I love it. I love it. I love when people are way better than me. That's the best. It's like the nerd in class who gets all the A's and the teacher's pet and they're so smart and they're likable. Yeah. Like, I hate, it's the nerd that's a jackass that I like. You know, the nerd who's smarter than everyone, but they're such a jerk, no one cares. Uh, Mm. He's the nerd who's smarter and better and awesomer than everyone, and you still want to like him anyway because he's such a nice guy, and I cannot stand people like that. Huh, that's interesting. I feel like we're divided on that one. I really like the nice people. I want people that are better than me and that they're nice and approachable and that I can try to have a conversation with them and spend a lot of time saying things like, can you explain it to me differently? I don't get it. Can you help me with this? I don't get this. Because I I don't know, like in grad school, that was sort of my secret to success is that I would get in way over my head and then I would go hang out with people that were smarter than me and say, I don't know what I'm doing here. What? How do I get this started? And they'd be like, oh, Dan, you're so dumb. Do this. And I'd be like, oh, I get it. And then I'd go take off and spend a month trying to understand what they told me. I was just trying to make an argument that I hate someone for being that perfect. But the truth is, I do like Chris Hatfield. And I was yeah. I was really excited to talk to him that day, you know? Yeah, it showed. There's only been a few times where I've been like that excited to talk to somebody. But I wanted to bring that up because you were talking about us mentioning you and you feeling really great about it. And he being one of your heroes. This isn't really the same because it wasn't one of my heroes. It was someone who worked with one of my heroes. Okay. But about a month ago, I was driving down to News Talk 1010, the station in Toronto where Jim Richards has his show, News Talk Tonight. Great guy, Jim Richards. You were on the air talking about me, and you also were talking about working with Craig Ferguson. Oh, yes. And Craig Ferguson is one of my heroes. He's my favorite of the late night people. I didn't, I've never even told you this. Uh, and a long time ago, you told this to me privately, and it's like the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. But you said I reminded you of him, which I still don't believe because that's not you do. possible. You do. Uh, but then I heard you say it. I'm like in my car with my brother driving to this station. Oh, I hope your brother heard it. I hope your brother took it to heart. Go on. Uh, he's like me and you, just such a narcissist he wouldn't listen. But um, oh. I hear you comparing me to Craig Ferguson on the air, and it was just very – it was a very nice moment for me. Good. It, it did it make up for my parents not paying enough attention to me growing up, being the reason that I got into radio and want to be heard to this day? No, not quite, but it made it up for it a little bit, okay? Yeah. Well, I listen, I don't want to be preventing you from being on radio. If that's the, the effect of attention, then I won't give you any more attention because I think you're very good at it, and I think it's great having you on the air. I think you do good work, and I'm enjoying your podcast. That's what I'm trying to say. Thank you. The emotional neglect of my childhood will keep me going. Uh, I never wanted good. for any, anything, so it makes it hard to pity me. You know, I grew up comfortably, never hungry, never at risk of not having a roof over my head. But yeah, the parents, they did not pay a lot of attention to me. That's <laughs> the youngest of four accident. Oh. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Where do you stack sibling-wise? Oh, I'm the oldest. I am the o- I'm the older of two brothers, and then I have a half-sister, and uh, that's it. What, what do they do, or do you, you want to keep that private? Yeah, I don't talk about it that much. My brother's a lawyer. My sister does various different things, different businesses, stuff like that. And uh, they live in Edmonton. Yep. And uh, yeah. They're in the business world. 
Yeah, they're they're accomplished. They're not like me just trying to scrape it together by being on the radio and talking about science. I mean, if you're talking to me and uh, talking to me and accomplished have only ever happened at the same time once, and that's with Chris Hadfield. Chris Hadfield, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Although that may have been his peak. That was interesting, and it was neat to hear him talk about writing a book. That's the other thing. I was so mad about that because, like, for him, he's like, "Oh, so I thought I'd try to write a book," and then he just writes a book, and it's like, uh, is it a bestseller? Uh, I don't know. I think it was on the, it's very, no offense to him, but the New York times bestseller list is complete bullshit, but, um, he made it on there, but what isn't bullshit and what's awesome about him is as I was interviewing him about this book, it became very clear to me that he wrote it like completely wrote it and did everything. Sometimes these people just kind of come up with an idea and someone else writes it. Yeah, uh, it was very clear to me with him that he wrote it, and I don't know. It's like, what doesn't he do? Yeah, I respect that. I remember when I so early on in my TV career, I was on a show that um, got me a, a nice bunch of network connections. Did it rhyme with Haley Planet? <laughs> no, it was before that. So before I was ever on Haley Planet, uh, before I was on Daily Planet Canada, I was on a show in the states that was going to be on Discovery Channel called Curiosity. So we filmed for a year. And I flew to like Morocco and all over the States and all these different places, UK, and we filmed all these episodes. And then the network changed direction and they decided they weren't going to air it. So they, they aired it like once as a different TV show name so they could pay for it basically out of some fund. And then it never aired again. So it was an interesting experience spending a year on something to have it never come to fruition. It was a very meditative Um but uh, when I was doing that, they were talking about having a, a book that would be a companion piece. And so they they set it up and they were like, yeah, we can get a ghostwriter. Just give us some general ideas of what you want to talk about and we can we can have a ghostwriter write it. And I was like, that that doesn't make any sense. Like I, I, I'm supposed to be this academic and academics write. So I will write this book. So anyway, that eventually became Mother Nature is Trying to Kill You, which I'm very proud of and very happy with. And that came out in 2014. And I, I yeah. And I remember when I was promoting that, I went on the Craig Ferguson show and he looked at it and he's like you actually wrote this didn't you <laughs> same thing and i was like yes yes i did craig ferguson is this an uh, is this comparing me to craig ferguson saying that chris yeah, Hadfield yeah. actually wrote it when maybe he didn't <laughs> no you know it i won't so you're not just like a scientist you also are a science educator media personality kind of thing uh and you talk about working on the show for like a year and having it never air yeah yeah how did that feel because for me it would feel terrible but i if i was working on some project like that but i think i would be at peace with it because i love doing the work and so for me love the love of the work is slightly higher than like getting praise getting the work out there getting support from a television network a radio network don't get me wrong Uh, i'm a narcissist i like all those things but at the end of the day like i can go to bed at night if my work goes nowhere because i know i love doing the work at the time is that like are, are you like that with this kind of work like is that how it felt I don't know. It's interesting. So that time I was an academic for, I don't know, I guess a decade before that, learning how to write scientific papers and do research. And what happens there is that you'll you'll have a data set or you'll have a scientific question and you'll do experiments. And sometimes they'll lead to a paper, but sometimes it'll be a bit of a dead end and you won't get a scientific paper out of it. And you tell yourself that the time's not wasted, but the, the scientific papers are the sort of units by which you are measured and by which you try to get jobs and stuff. So if you spend a lot of time on something that doesn't end up in a paper, you've spent your time poorly from that perspective. And so the, the game is to try to find a way to publish everything you're working on. Even if, if you're on some like long shot, like tangent, at least make it into a review paper or something. Find a way to do something with those data that you can publish. And so when I made the transition to TV, I was in that mindset. And so as we started, I was like, 
there's no way I'm going to be the host of the biggest show on Discovery Channel. Like, that just doesn't seem like it's possible. That, But they, yet, that's what they were telling me, and that's what we were working on. And so I was like, yeah, okay. So I was learning a ton. And so it felt like a really intensive one year how to be the host of a TV show graduate program. That was very expensive and I didn't pay for it. Um, and I got paid while I did it. And I flew in like business class, like to the UK and I met all these interesting people. And like I got to go to the desert in Morocco and I got to do all these amazing things and see these amazing places and meet these really interesting people and jump out of an airplane, uh, while I was getting my heart rate monitored and go rock climbing in Colorado and like all this amazing stuff. But the whole time I had this little voice in the back of my head that said, this, I still don't know where this is going to lead. And so in the end, when it all just disappeared, I sort of said, okay, that was a one-year training program and now I have these skills and now I'm going to try to apply them. And so since then, I've been trying to sort of make good on them. And so it it does feel – it did feel disappointing, but I hadn't invested a lot in the final product. I felt much more like I was in a training program and then I came out the other side of it. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make this fit into my brain. There's two pillars of work here. There's like the doing science side of things and then there's like TV, radio, media – uh, being an educator side of things. And then there's like two categories of what you're doing. One, you're doing it for praise, recognition, getting it out there. Uh, in science, it's having many papers published. In media, it's getting your show out. Uh, and then there's the work itself. In science, it's writing the papers. In media, it's doing all that stuff you want to do. So I've got two classes of work and two things that you're doing it for. And I guess my question is, do you love the work for both sides? Do you love the work yeah. for doing the science stuff and then also being an educator? Yeah, I do. I do love the learning pr part of it is what unites them. So when I'm in the where I'm an academic and I'm writing a review paper about bats, which I still do, um, I'm working on a book chapter right now about how bats fly. I love the learning. I love finding a paper. I love taking that information and integrating it into it and then piecing together a really clear paragraph that a, a reader who's in the academic world will read and they'll understand bat flight better than they did before and they'll be grateful and they'll feel like, oh, that Dan sure can communicate, confusing things in a clear way. And I love that. And I do get that feedback. That's the doing the work side. And then the, yeah. bu the bullshit side is the praise, how many papers you get published. Yeah, yeah, that's the idea. The, the 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 metrics. I mean, it would be really disheartening if I never had a paper cited. I w and I do get mad when a paper comes out in my field and I don't get cited. Like I get my feelings hurt, and I do get really happy when I do get cited. Like there's this paper that came out. I think it was 2017, where people built RoboBat. No, BatBot Two. They called it, and they were from Caltech and somewhere else. I can't remember where. And they built a flying robot, and the way that it moved was based on these mathematical constructs from Riskin et al. Uh, 2008, this paper that I wrote for the Journal of Theoretical Biology about how bats move their bodies. And they like it's because of my work that they were able to build a, f a functional flying bat robot. And so that is pretty nice. Like It is, but it is yeah. the bullshit side. It's the side yeah. you can't control. The only right. side that you can control is the doing the work side, the sitting yeah. down, writing the paper, doing the studies. No one can take that away from you, but the recognition bullshit side, people can take away from you. I guess yeah. I'm drawing 
drawing the parallels here because for me, what we're doing right now is doing the work, whereas like having a network syndicated radio show for me was like the bullshit side. Uh, but I, I'm, yeah. I'm only human. Uh, I do miss it. Uh, yes. And, and I am affected when things don't go my way. In your case, when your show doesn't get released, like we're only sure. human. But the idea is to try to fill your life with like focusing on the work more than the bullshit side. Is this making sense? Yeah, no, I totally hear what you're saying. Uh, and I, I guess I'm beating around the bush to say that I agree with you. Yes, it's the doing, it's the putting it, it's the crafting it that's fun. And then, you know, to finish the thought, it's the 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 side where I'm on TV doing stuff. I really enjoy having a good interview and having a fun segment. And I hope that it gets seen widely. And I hope that it, it, it you know, takes off or goes goes viral or whatever. It never goes viral, viral. It's a science clip on the news but but it does it does feel really good when you do have like a good connection with a host and it does go well so um i guess you know when you look back at it you won't look back at the big awards you'll look back at the the, the work that you made and, and the stuff that you, and the good segments you did right so maybe that's part of the answer and that's how i feel about our segments dan <laughs> Yeah. Well, it will win awards. We just won't get too excited about them. I'm sure we'll win awards for this. You will. I'm sure uh, best podcast award as given out by friend of David's who listened to one episode as a favor. Uh, that's that's the award. Yeah, that award. Yeah. Yeah. I just I, I, I think about this a lot. Like hmm. the love of the work is and, and the need to do the work is what keeps you in something not the praise, not the recognitions. And it's it's like you say, I do a great interview. I feel good about it. I hope that people see it. I hope the bullshit side goes well for me, but I can't control that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think of the, the classic example is Vincent van Gogh, right? I mean, never sold a painting or sold one painting or something like that. Nobody appreciated him at all when he was alive. And then as soon as he died, he was like the biggest thing in the world. And to be Vincent van Gogh would kind of suck in a way. Like you, all he was was like an artist that nobody cared about. There, there are millions of those, right? There are mil- literally millions of artists that nobody cares about. And he was just one of them. And then after he dies, all this stuff happens. So what's the point, you know? And what what do we do? And, and so I don't know. For me, the, the point is the learning. I really f- that was something I learned in grad school is that if you're improving who you are, like learning more, but also like just becoming a better person and being nicer and being more like having good relationships with the people you love, like that's the stuff where if I can be improving, then I feel like it's worth it. And that's kind of like this this you this metric that I try to think of is the the one that I should optimize. I read a quote once, which is, uh, "You have the right to work." but only for the work's sake. You don't have the right to the fruits of your work, which is to say like Van Gogh had the right to paint, but he had no right to success. And as a creative, and and I I consider this kind of work creative, like I consider myself an artist for doing this. And I know that may sound arrogant. Yeah, sure it does. (laughs) Well, it does, but it's appropriate. I mean, just to say I'm an artist is arrogant. Yes. But even artists who say it are arrogant, but it's appropriate. It's, It's accurate. I agree that you're an artist, uh, and I also agree it sounds arrogant. So yeah, both can be true. I, I've struggled with that one for a long time. To huh. say, like, long-form interviews are art um, is, like, kind of difficult, you know? Like, but you're a good interviewer. You Like, you are gifted at it. I've tried to interview people. It's not easy. You've tried to make it, like, feel like a conversation. I've had, like, those times where I'm like, I don't know what to ask next, or, like, the person's talking, and I can't hear them because all I can hear is my own voice saying, you don't know what you're going to ask next! Find a question! Like it's it's really hard, and you you think that voice isn't screaming <laughs> up my head all the fucking time, really? As loud as it is for you? Oh, you make it it's so smooth when I listen to you. You're just like smooth like butter. Are you insane? 
For me, the creative battle as an artist is a fucking fist fight with that voice every time I'm performing. Oh, I'm so relieved to hear that. My imposter syndrome is... Are you insane? Do you think that people who like do this kind of work don't? I mean, I I have a friend. I'll, I'm also going to sound arrogant. Strombolopoulos. George claims that he like doesn't have any fear when he's performing. He says, like, I, I could talk to... I mean, he worked with Oprah for a while. He's like, I could do an interview with Oprah or I could just like interview the guy next door and I'm not nervous for either and there's something wrong with my brain. I've met people who claim that voice isn't there. I don't know that I believe him but for me it's it's like i'm i'm not lucky like that and, and i don't think i'll ever be lucky the voice it's just battling that voice and coming up with what to say anyway is the struggle huh and, and i don't know why you think I, i'm like offended you think i don't have that voice my well you hide it or should we hide it or should you like should your next question always be like i'm having a hard time right now because i don't know what, actually that's kind of mark maron's thing like he's he he's likes to pretend that he's really like out of his element and to freak out and like people are drawn to that. So maybe there's some wisdom to like leaning into that. I don't think he's pretending. I think he's got a handle of his voice to the point where like he can say that comfortably. And yet these two things can exist at the same time, uh, almost in contradiction, almost at odds with each other. Hmm. Um, what's the word in, uh, in therapy that people always use? Uh, it starts with an A. Uh, Alcohol. No. <laughs> Uh, I'm blanking on the word when two things are at odds with each other, but they're still in your head. Uh, antagonistic? No. Antonyms? Anthrax? Angiogram? Alka-Seltzer. Astronomy. Not cognitive dis dissonance. Jesus, my brain isn't working, Dan. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, you're way outside my element. Artiodactyls? Absolute vodka. Albatrosses? Now the voice in my head is like louder than ever. Yeah, okay. So this is a perfect example. So so yeah, you, you've derailed. You've uh, derailed. I don't even remember what I was talking about. Like, No, neither do I. Hey, you want to talk about science? No, I want, I want to go. This, I was making a point, Dan. I'm trying to bail you out. Okay, I don't think Mark Marin is pretending. I think he, as a performer, has honed his craft. And it's that voice of doubt is there, but he's gotten very comfortable and very experienced talking about it. And so it's this weird contradictory concept of like, he's saying he's anxious. He's saying he doesn't know what to say, but it's part of his shtick and he understands his shtick and it's a tool he uses while interviewing. And so he's so comfortable saying that he's uncomfortable that you think he's pretending, but I think it's coming from a real place as a performer. Did that make sense? Yes, but are you saying it makes him comfortable so he ceases to be uncomfortable when he says, I'm so uncomfortable? Yes, but I think these two things can exist in contradiction at the same time. So you're saying he can be uncomfortable and it is real discomfort, but as soon as he says it to make himself comfortable, it was still authentic because he was uncomfortable there for a minute. Yes, and it is a All tick, right. but it's also not a tick because he's learned how to use it as part of his craft. Mm -hmm. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Now, the, you and the contradictions. You love the contradictions. Yeah. Yep, I do. And you hate them. I love and hate them. I just think <laughs> psychologically, uh, you can have two things existing in your head that are at odds with each other. You can have contradictions. You can be a hypocrite. Uh, I think it's the integration of those that makes us, you know, well-adjusted adults. It's not that Interesting. everything you believe and everything you feel is consistent. It's that you can hold these two things in your mind at the same time. Interesting. Interesting. I'm going to meditate on that because I feel like I try to avoid that. I try to avoid hypocrisy. Do you? I don't always achieve it, but I, I do aim to avoid being a hypocrite. I, I think it's just being at peace with it.
Anyone who says they're not a hypocrite is probably the biggest hypocrite, right? right? Sure, sure. It's impossible to not be a hypocrite. I mean, you try to do good in the world. Yeah, it's very hard. It's very hard. But striving to it, I think, is good. Dan, do you want to talk about science? We're talking a lot about sure. like feelings, thinking, deep stuff, how we feel as performers. Uh, mm. But there's some science that you have brought to the table about being a, quote, fast thinker. Uh, I know I talk fast, but I don't think fast. I'm just an idiot. There isn't a thought in my head. So I don't know. That's not true. That's just self-deprecating humor. But listen, you are smart and comedians tend to be smart, right? People that make jokes tend to be quick on their feet. And it's been thought for a long time that fast thinkers are smart thinkers. And so if it takes you a long time to figure something out, uh, like sometimes that voice in your head, the one we were talking about, at least for me, is like, why are you so dumb? If you were smart, you would have figured this out already. But a new study is going to make you feel better because in this study, they gave people these uh, these tests called the Penn Matrix Reasoning Test. And so these are kind of like the kind of fun questions they have on IQ tests where it's like, okay, if it goes square, circle, triangle, and then circle, triangle, square, what would circle, triangle, what comes next in this sequence? Like something like that. And don't spend any time trying to answer that one because I just threw out a bunch of words at random. I, there's no answer to that one. Uh, there's here some mathy whatever pattern. Uh, yeah. Finish the pattern for us would be the question. Yeah. Exactly. And it starts very easy, right? And so when it's very, very easy, people who are intelligent, and so intelligence was measured separately with a whole bunch of like rigorous tests to see what how people score on these intelligence tests. And so they have like a, a bunch of people of different intelligences taking these, these standardized tests, and sometimes they're really easy, and sometimes they're really hard. So they start off with really easy questions, and they get gradually harder and harder, and as they get to the end, the questions are very difficult. And what they found is the people with the higher intelligence are fast on the easy ones, but they are slower on the hard ones. And so when a test is really difficult, they actually take more time to work on it and are more likely to come up with the right answer than people who score lower on those intelligence tests. And so if you're taking a long time to think about something, it's okay. Maybe that just shows how smart you are. I've kind of anecdotally observed this in my past life as a software developer where, hmm. you know, the, the guys or the, the ladies who sit in the thinker position, you know, looking like Socrates with the beard, taking their time to come up with software architecture. Those are the people that really kind of like solve the big, big, big problems. And the ones who are really twitchy, like writing code every five seconds are usually the ones who kind of fill out the sketch that was provided by the, the deep, slow better thinkers. Uh, Interesting. So I've observed that in practice anecdotally. I don't know if I know of any more, any more evidence than that. Yeah. I mean, well, it's sometimes nice when your anecdotal evidence or your, your own experience fits with that. I mean, when I think about my work day, so like today I had a pretty scrambled day. I'm trying to get this book chapter done. And I, today was kind of the deadline that I had made for myself and it's not done, but it's close. And so I was like scrambling to finish that, but then I kept having things come up and I just had one of those days where I felt like I was sprinting and then like to eat, I like ran upstairs and grabbed some food and shoved it in my face and ran back down and got to work again. And that energy is not the energy of Socrates thinking and coming up with the architecture in your office, right? Like I need to be slowing it down and thinking big. And so and sometimes it's like that, you know, fake it till you make it thing. Like maybe if I just slow down and stop whacking them all, I'm going to do better work. And maybe I won't accomplish as many of the whack-a-mole things, but maybe I'll do better work for the big strokes. And maybe that's the more important thing. So anyway, I, I'm going to think on this study for sure. So I, I'm often called a fast thinker, but I'm also fastly thinking about worrying all the time about mm. everything. And I know this is a joke people make. Oh, I have OCD. I have OCD. But scientists actually have uncovered something that is the basis for OCD right now. 
Yeah. So first of all, like, let's talk about OCD for a second, because OCD is like this Seinfeldian punchline that is great and fun to say, like, oh, I have to arrange my desk because I have total OCD. And it sounds like this nice thing to say. But like, when you look at the extreme cases of OCD and how debilitating it is for people, there's nothing cute. Uh, and like, I have to throw these runners out because my shoelace came untied in a bathroom. Like, th th that is not what we're talking about. Like, people with OCD, imagine that you are um, you're getting dressed in the morning and you have the wrong thought while you put on your underwear. Well, now the, the underwear is ruined. You have to put it through the wash again. So you take them off, you put them through the wash, you have to have a shower and then you got to try again. And then like, it sounds like a joke, but that's seriously what it's like for these people. And so not surprisingly, some of these people just never leave the house or have a very hard time leaving the house. And so OCD, like the real McCoy OCD is debilitating yeah. and and trying to figure out how to treat it has been elusive. But researchers just figured out that there's a part of the brain where these two neurotransmitters are out of whack in people with OCD compared to people who don't have OCD. And that's really gratifying because once you find something physical that you can point to, one, it makes diagnosis a whole different thing because now you could just say, yep, you've got it, no question, instead of it being any kind of judgment call. And then B, it, it starts to point the way to treatments. So there's this excitatory neurotransmitter and I don't know how much your listeners do science geeky things, but a neurotransmitter is just the chemical that lets one neuron pass a, a message on to the next neuron. And, and, and sometimes it's excitatory. It says like, Hey, fire, fire, fire. And sometimes it's inhibitory where it says stop firing, stop firing. And the ratio of the excitatory neurotransmitters to the inhibitory neurotransmitters is off in people who have OCD in certain parts of the brain. And so now that they found this, uh, they're, they're pretty excited about it. So treatment options might be like medication or a lobotomy. What would help? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a big question. I'm not. I'm not up on current uh, psycho psychiatry. Is are lobotomies still used to treat routine disorders? Oh, I think. I think what you do is you just cut the front of the brain right off. No, yeah. I don't. I don't think lobotomies are used, and I don't know what. I mean, brain surgery certainly is, and drugs certainly are. But what the question? I mean. One, is this the cause or is this just another symptom of the disease, right? So it might be that if it's a symptom, you could treat it, treat that symptom, and then it wouldn't make any difference to the underlying disease, or it might be the cause. What's, what's kind of compelling is that in people who don't have OCD, there are different gradations of these neurotransmitters in those parts of the brain, and you start to see a spectrum among non-OCD people of how compulsive they are. So, for example, if you do have kind of OCD-like tendencies that are more like a Seinfeld punch line than actual OCD, you're probably going to have your your ratio of these neurotransmitters a little bit off. And so that's kind of exciting too, because it might be that this isn't just about the extremes, but more of a scale that explains human behavior in general. It's really interesting. Let's talk about human behavior in a bit of a different way involving the legal system. It looks like judges make punishments worse when there's a longer delay before punishment. Should I be worried about that as a criminal, Dan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love bringing these stories to you. Like I spend one day a week, I spend the whole day just looking through scientific journal articles for random weird things that I think might be interesting. And this is one that I found that it's super neat because I mean, you know, there's the, all that stuff about like, you're supposed to, if you have a court case, try to have it after lunch instead of before lunch. Cause if the judge is hungry. Yeah. That's insane to me. Like the outcome of whether you're going to do time in the slammer is what time your case gets called and how far away the judge is from lunch. Yes. Yes, that's a real thing. And this is another one where the the magnitude of punishment is correlated with how long it took for you to go to trial. So, um, you know, like, let's say that you uh, accidentally don't pay your taxes properly. And, 
you accidentally don't find out for a year and then you get charged and then it takes a year for it to go. And so here you are in front of a judge and four years ago, you didn't pay taxes and you're in front of a judge compared to somebody who just committed a crime and they're in front of a judge. What, what this study shows is that the longer it took for you to get in front of that judge, the more harsh your sentence is going to be. And they found this with two data sets. One was people who went to, uh, who did different small crimes, various crimes in Chicago, uh, 150,000 punishment decisions over the course of uh, several years, uh, but then also uh, NYPD police misconduct hearings. And Weird. so where people from the NYPD who were going in front of internal tribunal uh, to determine whether they broke the rules of conduct. Um, and so for the, the people going to trial in Chicago, on average, there was about a, a one month delay before they saw the judge, but there was lots of variants. And they showed from the data that the longer a person waited to see the judge, the bigger their punishment was. And then but not because they committed a worse crime, but just because of how long it took for them to get in front of the judge. And frankly, I'm sure that they had nothing to do with how long it took, right? Well, here, here's a weird thing that I don't know if the study accounts for this, but some people don't make bail. And so when they get sentenced, time served is included, right? They're, they're held in prison mm. during their trial. Let's say they're held in prison for, well, jail, they call it, not prison. I don't, there's, I can never understand the U.S. distinction between prison and jail, but apparently there is some. But regardless. I'm sure if you'd gone to them, you'd know the difference much better than you do. <laughs> I, I also have not been to jail or prison in the States, except with that TV show that I was on that never aired. I did go to this very infamous prison in the States called Angola Prison oh. in, in, uh, in the South. And man, that was a that was a trip. That was about the death penalty. Go on. That's weird and crazy. And I want to talk more about that at a later date. But you're held in jail, let's say three months, six months during your trial. And then when you get sentenced, let's say you get two years, they'll say, hey, we'll credit you that six months, of course. Right. Um, I think almost always that happens. Maybe it doesn't under crazy circumstances. But could that possibly be contributing to the longer sentences? I don't know. No, they, their mathematical model took a whole bunch. They took every single variable they could find and put it into the model about all, all the different stuff that was was going on. And this this emerged as a result. So that, this is not explained by that. Also with the, um, the NYPD data set, the average wait, instead of being a month like the Chicago data set, the, the, it, was, it took on average about eight months before people went to trial. But why this is, why you would get a more harsh sentence is is one of the questions that they wanted to answer. So in addition to the data from the, the actual courts, they interviewed a bunch of people using online uh, questionnaires and gave them a bunch of hypothetical scenarios and said, how much of a punishment would you do here? How much of a punishment would you do here? How much here? And they wanted to get at the mechanism. And what it comes down to, they figure, is that people think that they got away with something. Like if you commit a crime and then you don't go to jail for eight months, you kind of got away with something that's, that I'm mad about and I feel like you need to be punished more as opposed to you committed a crime and you go to jail right away. It's not because they worry that the people committed more crimes over the intervening period. It's not because they think that the people are masterminds that are actually controlling their outcome. It's that they feel like it just isn't fair that there's such a long delay. And, you know, like if a person commits a crime and causes pain to people, they shouldn't get to live free for two years until their trial finally goes to, to the judge. That's crazy. I mean, but if you think about it, imagine someone, I mean, this is an awful scenario, but someone kills a friend, a loved one of yours, sure. and then it takes forever for the punishment and sentence. You'd be like, why is this fucker out free right now when they killed my friend? Uh, yeah. As opposed to if it happens very quickly within a month, the guy's sentenced. Uh, and I don't mean to be sexist and say it's a guy, but it's usually men. It makes sense. Well, it's a hypothetical, so you can say whatever you want. I mean, you, you think of like, 
I, I, every politician, everybody who's worked up about politics, whichever side they're on, has a politician they think got away with something, and it's infuriating. Uh, we're talking about Trump, right? <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> he didn't get away with something. He got away with everything, but we'll everything. see. We'll see. Every day that goes by, I think they're going to... But it's not fair. No, no. The way that he acts is not fair. Dan, uh, this was, of all the interviews I've ever done with you, definitely one of them. I appreciate you yes. coming here today. <laughs> yes. uh, did I have a full mental panic when I couldn't come up with that word mid-interview? When did I you come s- up with it now? No, it's been bothering me all interview. And then I'm <laughs> like, I can't get it out of my head. And this is why I usually take beta blockers before I do interviews. I didn't today. Because oh. uh, it just helps you cope with like the freakout symptoms when you get something wrong. But you don't remember it as well. So uh, my, I'm trying to ask GPT. Let's see. Uh, I'm looking for a word having to do. It's like two concepts, two two like emotions held in contradiction. Two emotions in contradiction. Well, emotions are, uh, and I believe it starts with an A. Ambivalence. Jesus fucking Christ. Ambivalence. It is. ChatGPT got it. Yes. Ah. Uh... Yes, uh, as I was saying. Did it come to you before ChatGPT though? Did you get it before I? Before yeah, I just googled I, it. I I finally. Oh, you googled, so Google but beat GPT because you type fast. We were talking about Mark Marin, and you were saying his shtick about being uncomfortable and not knowing what to talk about next, and pretending to have a panic, and then he starts talking about that in the interview, and then it kind of uh, it progresses the interview forward. That's what the concept you were talking about, right? Yeah. Uh, and you were saying it's fake, and I'm saying he's got some probably some ambivalence about it. He very it's very real that he's had that emotion and had that feeling mid-interview. He's had that panic, and yet he's a performer who has a good handle of it, which means he shouldn't have the panic. It's like I don't know. It's like Larry David talking about being anxious when he's doing interviews on late night TV. Like I don't believe him, but I right. believe his character is constantly deal like personally. He's constantly all his life dealt with performance anxiety, right. and so it's. It's like both can exist at the same time. That's all I'm saying. You know what's interesting is I've misunderstood the definition of ambivalence my entire life. Yeah. Because I thought it meant you just did not care. But you're saying it means you feel two different emotions about the thing at the same time, which is I've been using it incorrectly. It, it, it could be a belief. It could be two feelings. It, it's, it's sort of a broad, a broad word that covers reactions, beliefs, feelings. Uh, states of being like let's say let's like a horrible scenario someone <laughs> here we go again how about that guy that killed my family again here's a mild uh, that it's definitely ki- kid friendly a child molester gets killed in prison okay that's kid friendly because that just helps kids yeah that's... am i am totally against murder i'm against the death penalty but like do i really feel that bad that this like known awful horrible human got murdered no so i have some ambivalence about it you know i got you uh, or you. like I'm really excited to do some sort of performing, but I'm also really nervous and I think I'm going to fail at the same time. Uh, mm. I know that I've got a good handle of my voice and I'm probably going to succeed and yet I suck at everything. I'm going to fail. That's ambivalence. Got it. You got it? Yeah. I think I got it. Okay. Well, I'm not ambivalent about whether or not this was a fun interview. <laughs> uh, Dan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Say hi to Chris Hadfield for me. I won't. <laughs>